Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihil kareem amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. So we are continuing our exploration of What is Islam by Shahab Ahmad. And what page are we on? 82. Page 82. And since you're already there, would you like to read? Oh, sure. <laughs> the Balkans to Bengal complex represents the most geographically, demographically, and temporally extensive instance of a highly articulated shared paradigm of life and thought uh, in the history of Muslims. It is demographically, spatially, and temporally and if not the historically major paradigm of Islam. Extending as it does over half a millennium and more than half the world of Muslims, the Balkans to Bengal complex is certainly the dominant paradigm of Islam in the long historical period that directly preceded the violent eruption of European modernity into societies of Muslims. Okay, so just one way, a simple way to think about this is that if we were to try to pinpoint a center to where the Muslims are, one center might be Mecca or Medina or a different capital in our history like Damascus or Baghdad. And so he's saying, generally speaking, this region, this big, big, this big, big region of land would sort of be the center. And what that also means is that where's the region where everyone seems to cross over, cross through? And so that's where he's saying you'll find sort of everything. And that's the Balkans to Bengal uh, complex, that big... Uh, um, that's huge, though. It is a very, very big region. Yeah. And so the idea being he's trying to make it as center as possible and as large as possible, where you have some degree of consistency, okay. even if it's just a little bit of consistency. Yeah. You said temporally a center. Yeah. Temporally a major paradigm of Islam. What do you mean by that? So temporally would mean essentially by way of time. Right. Uh, as opposed to geographically. Right? So, or as opposed to politically. So if we look at influence-wise, what are the regions that have the most influence? Saudi Arabia has the most influence. The big centers of learning, Azhar, Deoband. Um, and it's probably fair to say that we in the United States, with each year, have more and more influence over the rest of the Muslim world, even though our population is tiny. But because America is culturally uh, influential over the rest of the world, we uh, are privy to those pathways. So. It is important to bear in mind that from the 16th century to the 20th, what we might call the old world of Islam, that is, the historically significant societies of Arabic-speaking Muslims of Egypt, Syria, Palestine, Iraq, and the Hejaz, were under Ottoman rule and thus directly under the paradigmic influence of the norms of the Balkans to Bengal complex. Okay, so essentially in another way what he's saying is the reasons that were most recently under Ottoman rule. And a way to think about this is that if you imagine going from North Africa across through the Middle East, up through Turkey, through Central Asia, down to the Indian subcontinent, down to Southeast Asia, that's generally the region that people speak about most when they talk about the Muslim world. Sometimes people also include Central or Sub-Saharan Africa. And then most of those regions, except for Sub-Saharan Africa and the Indian subcontinent, were under Ottoman rule, right? The Mughals begin in Central Asia and stretch down. But if you move just a little bit to the west, you're automatically in Ottoman lands. So that's another way. Because prior to Ottoman rule, these were Abbasid lands. And prior to Abbasid lands, they were Umayyad lands. And prior to Umayyad lands, they were non-Muslim. We must also remember that the Islam that arrived at the shores of and took root in the vast Malay archipelago 
what we might call the new world of Islam, was heavily pregnant with the norms of the Indian region of the Balkans to Bengal. Okay, so this is also interesting. So the old world is that stretch. The new world is Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, and then we'll see if he talks about the United States later on. Yet when moderns, both Muslim and non-Muslims, think about Islam in representative terms, um, yet when moderns, both Muslims and non-Muslims, think about Islam in representative terms, our overwhelming conceptual and analytical tendency is to marginalize and disenfranchise the paradigm of Islamic life and thought of the Balkans to Bengal complex. And so, what do we usually think of? We usually think of Arabia. Yeah. Right. Um, Whereas, you know, most of, of the development of Islam after the Prophet, peace be upon him, in the first generations was non-Arab, mm. right? It's, a, it's an Arab empire for a hundred years and then never again. Yeah. When we think about what represents Islam, we tend not to think of, of Balkans to Bengal in the period 1350 to 1850. It is very much for this reason that I am taking the, Bengal, the Balkans to Bengal complex as the primary socio-historical case in this book. It is at once a major and a dominant historical paradigm of Islam, but is largely unrecognized as such. The purpose, then, is to answer the question, what is Islam, by way of this Balkans to Bengal paradigm that, despite its scale, centrality, duration, maturity, articulation, and capaciousness, by and large and for no good reason, usually is not conceived of as sufficiently central or authentic as to be appropriate to the question. So this seems to be one of his overall uh, functions of this book. It's basically to shift the core of Islam from the Arab world to this region next door. And more than that, to you know the post-Ottoman world. Um, which is, I think, a really important point to consider in terms of the history of Islam. Because the history of Islam, you have the prophet, I mean, the, the academic study of the history of Islam. You have the prophet, peace be upon him, his generations... A lot of discourse on the Umayyads and Abbasids, and then everything else is looked at as being peripheral. And he's moving the peripheral to the to the center, specifically the Ottomans. And it's interesting, like, you know, if you do studies of the Near East, uh, Near Eastern studies, uh, it's as though nothing in the world exists, you know, um, beyond that particular region in, in uh, the, the Middle East. Um, and so forget Africa, South Asia, North, uh, Eastern Europe, and such. Um, what was the reason that the capital then stayed in, in the Middle East for so long? Well, this is where the empires were. I mean, so forget forget the term Middle East. So what's the first capital? Uh, Medina. Medina. What's the second capital? Damascus. Before Damascus. Okay, um, Kufa. Kufa, right. Kufa, and then Damascus, and then Baghdad. Mm -hmm. And then it's never one capital ever again, Right. And so under the Ottomans, or under the Seljuks, it's Konya. Uh, under the Ottomans, it eventually becomes Istanbul. But under the Mughals, you know, who have their own independent, fully thriving civilization and empire, uh, it's Delhi, right? You have the Ghaznavids. What was the capital of the Ghaznavids? Oh, okay, maybe I'll let the Afghani look it up. All right, and then so under Spain... You know, you have other places and so forth and so on. So, see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, many of the capitals are in the Middle East. Okay. But the capital is not always in the Middle East. Okay. Yeah. But is he, so is he trying to, like, shed light onto the Balkans to Bengal complex? In a way, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or is he trying to...
completely shift the focus there and say, you know what, this is more important than the Middle East and like. Uh, I think he's doing both. Okay. Like it, like it's kind of like saying, if we want to understand Islam, we're going to learn more. If we want to understand Islam and the Muslims, we're going to learn more if we look at this other region rather than look at the Arabian Peninsula. Okay. Yeah, our primary material is coming from the Arabian Peninsula, from a very tiny region of the, of the Arabian Peninsula in a very small period of time. Right. But if we get into moving outside of Ibadah, um, getting into all kinds of cultural practices and such, we're going to learn a whole lot more if we go to this other region. Okay. Yeah. This is the type of book that becomes uh, revolutionary in terms of its particular field, but its effect won't take place for like at least another 20 years or so. Okay. Just because the book is so gigantic. Yeah. yeah. Is the yeah. capital um, Peshawar? Uh, I think it was one of the capitals, but not uh, not the specific one that I'm Wait, Which one are you thinking of? We'll see, we'll see. No, tell gonna... me. Is it going to be in here? Should be. Oh, no, okay. it, won't be in, it won't necessarily be in our book identified as the capital of the Ghaznavids. But people Lahore? Are... Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Okay. Okay. It should be needless to say that my focus on the Balkans to Bengal complex is in no way to delegitimate the normative Islam of the paradigm of any other region or period. And examples from other times and places will duly be cited in the course of this book. Neither is it the case that the Balkans to Bengal complex is so peculiar or unique as to be schematically unrepresented unrepresentative or inapplicable of anything other than its very large and protracted self. Rather, the point is that redirecting our analytical and conceptual gaze to the norm normativities yeah. of the Balkan Savengal complex will help us to recognize as integral to the meaningful conceptualization of Islam features and elements that, by focusing on other regions and periods, we have grown accustomed to marginalize and ignore. Okay, so what does he mean by this term normative? What's normal? Okay, thank you for, for, for using the same <laughs> word, essentially. So basically, what we seem to find as consistent practice over and over again. Yeah. So like, if we talk about normative methods of college student dining, okay, what would you include them there for loyal students? Um, among dorm, dorming students, probably the meal plan and like cafeterias. Yeah, and so you'll have people who don't follow that, but that's basically... You know, if you want to get a sense of it, that's where you, you would look most. Right. And so normative Islam would then be, what do we find most consistent, most repetitive, so forth and so on? And he's saying you're going to find it in this region much more. Okay. Yeah. What was that? And once? And once we have reconceptualized Islam in a manner and mode that accounts for the normativities of Balkan Bengal complex, it will be possible to turn back to other periods and regions and to view them in a new light and with the benefit of a new perspective, which will enable us to see things that we have been unable to see before. Mm -hmm. So this becomes a really important point, that we're so used to looking at everything through the Arab lens, there's a lot of things we miss out. Mm -hmm. And so thus, looking at it through this lens, there's a lot of things we couldn't see that were right in front of us. By taking the expansive, capacious, and contradictory Balkans of Bengal complex as our representative case study, we are, in the first instance, forced to think about how to conceptualize Islam in expansive, capacious, and contradictory terms, and in the second instance, to look at other historical instances and expressions of Islam through this reconceptualization of Islam. Okay, so like, think about this. Like When we talk about Desis, uh, we talk about Indians and Pakistanis. Often do we talk about Bengalis. Very rarely. Very, very rarely, right? And then going further, Bengalis often get assumed to be Urdu-speaking. Mm 
right? And this is exactly the same point. So suppose, like, what's the population of Bangladesh? 60 million? It's probably higher. It's probably much higher than 60 million. 160 but, million. Okay. <laughs> but the point being that, all right, uh, if we look at the subcontinent through the lens of India, then we're going to give far less attention to Pakistan and Bangladesh than we should. If we look at through the lens of Pakistan, we're going to give Bangladesh far less attention than we should. So it's kind of like he's saying, okay, you're missing out this whole big part of the subcontinent, which is, you know, the, the Bengalis, the Banglas, right? And so that's what he's doing the whole Muslim world. Or even think about the Afghanis. The Afghanis kind of are left out of the Persians and they're left out of the Desis. Right, as and you, of all of it, yeah, the exactly. <laughs> and so much of Islamic history has taken place in that region. For example, the Ghaznavids. Anyway, so so the point is, What's this the is the same point. We'll see. Okay. Is it Kabul? Maybe. Okay. Is Keep it Balkh? Maybe. Okay. Keep oh. looking. Keep looking where? You have to look. You seek and you will find. <laughs> Finally, some readers might think that what I am calling the Balkans to Bengal complex is better termed the. Perso-Turkic, or Persianate? Yeah. Persianate? Persianate? Yeah. World. The problem. So, with so, oh yeah, oh. go ahead. He's gonna explain why that's probably oh, okay. good. The problem with these ter- terms is that they assumptively privilege linguistic and ethnic elements, suggesting that it is these eponymous, 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 yeah, uh, factors that are somehow the distinguishing and generative source of the phenomenon at stake. Okay, have we talked about Orientalism? I don't remember if we talked about it in our discussions. So, so Sayyid Qutb, or not Sayyid Qutb, uh, Edward Said, he, he develops this idea of, of Orientalism in the late 1970s. And he says, if you look at the process of empires, universities or colleges get formed to support empires, okay? especially in the modern West. And so what happens is that in universities, you'll have these area studies programs. You don't see them in a place like here, but you will see them in the bigger elite universities. University of Chicago, Duke, Loyola, or not Loyola, uh, Harvard. Well, I was saying Harvard and Loyola interchangeably. That's where Loyola is in my heart, mashallah. So anyway, so they'll have area studies programs like uh, Slavic studies, Near Eastern studies, South Asian studies. And the core of those regions is to learn the language. And the theory of Orientalism was that if we can learn a people's language, we learn everything we know about them, we need to know about them. Okay, which is kind of ridiculous, because if you know English, what does that tell you about uh, your knowledge of America? It doesn't tell you anything. Okay, maybe you can read American newspapers and American books, but it's not going to tell you about what life is like for me or for you or for you, right? Right. And so, so this is his critique of calling that the Persio-Turkic or the Persianate world, because that is trying to define the lands according to the language that's being spoken. And that's uh, what Edward Said is attacking, saying, okay, this is just such... So preposterous that if I become a scholar of Arabic, suddenly I understand the entire history of Islam, right? And and so then what the government was doing was it would fund these programs, and the universities, which are supposed to be these places of independent thought, whether they admit it or not, would collect all this funding, um, and they would be supporting the project of empire, but in a destructive way, because then you feel like you go through the program, and I need to I learn what I need to know. So I had classmates in a Near Eastern Studies programs program that were getting recruited by the FBI and the CIA. But what did they know about? They could tell you about the Abbasids, which stopped existing 800 years ago. I mean, they couldn't tell you much about modern, you know, what's going on in the modern Muslim world. But that's how our system has been set up for the past few decades, if not the past half century. 
This really started uh, after World War II, but the imperial project he's talking about goes all the way back to, to British imperialism and stuff. And don't these, like, Turkic, Persian, I mean, those are, like, the main languages probably, but there are so many other languages in those regions too. So basically it's saying if I learn Farsi, hmm. then every place that is part of the Farsi family I now understand automatically. So right. if I understand Farsi, how much do I know about Afghanistan? But I'm saying, yeah, I'm saying, like, even if you do understand yeah. the main language, how much do you understand? That's like, the key point. Yeah. yeah. And so, but the assumption there is that, all right, if I, like, if you if you go looking at, like, an FBI or CIA website, will they look for people who are language translators? They'll say, okay, we're looking for people who know Dari, who know Farsi, right. who know Punjabi, who know Pashto and stuff. And you can translate stuff for the purpose of intelligence gathering. Right. Um, but you're not going to know what's going on in terms of their houses. You know, what are their problems in their houses? What are their conversations about in their house? Yeah. You're not going to know anything like that. Any more than you would... Just because you've learned English in India, what is that going to tell you about what's going on in someone's house in Rogers Park? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Well, maybe Rogers Park, yeah. That's probably not the best example, but yeah. Okay, let's continue. My point is not to deny or detract from the presence or importance of historical elements of pre-Islamic Persian or Turkic origin in the construction or articulation of Islam in the Balkans to Bengal complex. My objection is to the is that the term Persianate used as a primary marker or adjective of first instance, highlights and suggests Persian as the constitutive um, and definitive genius of the shared Islamic paradigm of the Balkans to Bengal historical space, rather than as a very important component element in ongoing relational engagement with and alongside other elements. Okay, so he's saying if you focus on the language, and then you say Persianate, you're saying if you remove everything, the core of that region is Persian language, okay? Which we've already addressed is kind of ridiculous. I mean, so for example, if you were to list five cores of American life, what would you put them in? If I want to understand America, give me five five things that I should understand. McDonald's. Okay, so McDonald's means what? What do you mean by McDonald's? Fast food. Okay, so fast food as well as capitalism. Right. right? What else? Sports. Sports, what about sports? Sport culture. Okay, sports culture, which is a culture of competition, mm-hmm. which is a culture of rivalry, mm-hmm. which is a culture of a whole adversary system, whether it's in sports right. or in court. Mm-hmm. What else? Independence. So the philosophy of rebellion, of protest, of self-determination. But all also part just of, like, like individuality. It's not like yeah, community. Exactly. Individuality over community or community with individuality. And see all these? These are just concepts that we share. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Would I get any of that if I was a PhD in English? No, I mean the language of English. I feel like maybe you could if you like delve into literature. And so, like, but now we're getting to literature. We're not getting to just the grammar. Was yeah. was oh. the Orientalist view really that simple that yeah. it was just language? Oh, just the grammar? Yeah, I feel like that's I mean, like obviously oversimplified. Yeah, but when you are looking from the sen- uh, from the uh, the mind uh, of someone who's conquering. You're automatically going to look at the uh, the people you're subjugating as simplistic. Okay? You're not going to appreciate their complexity. You're not going to appreciate them as being as civilized or more civilized than you are. So these departments called Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. South Asian Languages and Civilizations. Slavic Languages and Civilizations. And the civilization part is primarily just studying history. In one semester? I mean, really- it depend- it'll be like a degree, a whole degree program. Still- like a PhD or whatever it is. But yeah. We're talking about studying a billion and a half people today, which means who knows how many billion people over history. 
And the Arabic that you're being taught back then was was fusha, which nobody speaks on the street, mm-hmm. right. right? So yeah, that's uh, basically a part of what he's critiquing when he says you focus on the language above everything else. So you'll find a lot of desis who uh, who are raised in Chicago and go to go to schools like Universal School that might know a lot about Arabs and yet may not know anything about Arabic, right? What do you think? Do you think that's possibly true? Possibly. Possibly. Okay, mashallah. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's continue. Well, you do know some stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah like alhamdulillah, and, you know, and wallahi, yeah. <laughs> and antakalb, yeah. The term Persianate serves to distract and detract from other generative elements in the paradigm, such as the prolific fecund, yeah. and in so many ways, importantly, antithetical, antithetical and disorienting Indic Hindu elements the challenge of engaging with which so productively and profoundly inflected and informed the articulation of Islam and the environment of the Indian subcontinent, which, in the period of the Balkan-Savengo complex, became home to the largest geographical concentration of Muslims on the planet, and of which examples uh, will appear shortly. Okay, so then he says, if you look at it through the Persian lens, that's not going to help you make sense of what's going on in the subcontinent, stretching from essentially from Kabul down through northern India, okay, there the world of Islam is so different and yet it's so concentrated as Muslim. Um, So what's taking place in the western ends of Islam, which is essentially Arabia, um, is a mixture of what the Prophet peace be upon him gave or brought as well as the Christian history and then later on the Greek history, but more so the Christian history. When you go to the subcontinent, it's this mixture of Islam with Hindu history. And you look at it uh, from the inside, and it's holy Islam. You look at it from the outside, and you're scratching your head. You look at these weddings, and you're like, huh? What's going on here? Yeah. And so, so he's saying, again, the problem by looking through the lens of specifically one language as an explanation for it all makes no sense. This term serves also to detract from the continuing centrality and fundamentality of Arabic discourses to the construction of Islamic meaning and value throughout the historical space and discourses characterized as Persianate. Yeah, and so where Persian, it might be the dominant language, it ignores the fact that Arabic is still central there, right? So, yeah. so for the way to think about the, the way Islamic history is often looked at is, okay, so Arabic in the early years, is the primary language of discourse and communication. And then eventually Persian becomes very common as a language of high culture. And also of, uh, and then also there's a mixture of Greek and other languages, because those were the local languages. Then when you move towards East, towards Central Asia, you have multiple different languages that might be part of the Persian family. And then you get into Urdu and Farsi, right? And, and But still, in India alone, you have a zillion different languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's basically, he's critiquing the problem of trying to look at everything through the lens of a language. Which here, this is stuff he's kind of building on Edward Said and just hitting head on with how much Islamic studies in the West works right now. Okay, let's stop right here. What page is this? Uh, 84. Okay, 84. And so we'll begin next time with a paragraph that begins, Persianate, thus runs too ready. Alrighty, subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nasafiru kuna tuwi ilayk, wa akhirat da'wana, and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.